This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles this evening uh, to our sermon text, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of God. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this portion of your word. We pray, Father, in our study of it this evening that you would bless it. You would teach us from it, nourish us by it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Hebrews is a book about better things, about what is superior in the new covenant that we have now in Christ Jesus over the old covenant, or the church in the Old Testament, if we want to think of it that way. In many ways, some of those things were very impressive, you know, visible manifestations of God's presence Prophets declaring, thus says the Lord, these kinds of things. And yet Hebrews reminds us that what we have now in the new covenant in Christ, though in many ways simpler, maybe not so obviously impressive, is nevertheless better, deeper, richer than what our brothers and sisters had under the old covenant. In chapter 1, he's already talked about that some in a couple of ways. One, that what we have now in Christ Jesus is better. Than those prophets who said, thus says the Lord. We have Jesus who said, truly, truly, I say to you, God himself with us in the flesh. Not speaking by means of a human prophet, but having taken to himself humanity and living here among us. And all of that, of course, recorded for our benefit, who don't live in the same time he did, recorded for us in the word of God. But then he's also superior to angels. The rest of chapter 1 is taken up with making this point. Which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Rather, the angels were servants. Or to which of the angels did he ever say, well, sit at my right hand till I place your enemies under your feet? You see, while the angels were under the power of God, The Son wields the power of God. He is the one on the throne. He is the one who reigns. In fact, the angels, as verse 14 of chapter 1 says, are ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. They serve Christ. 
and they serve Christ by serving us. And now the writer of the Hebrews takes just a moment to begin to rub some of this in, to begin some application. If you're familiar with Hebrews, or as we read through it, you'll see that periodically, he'll, after taking some time developing teaching or doctrine, ideas, then he pauses to sort of apply it, to, to press the point home. And he does that here. He's talking about Christ superior to the prophets, Christ superior to the angels, and now he brings us this little section of application or exhortation. And basically what it has to say here is this. We need to pay very careful attention to our walk with Christ. We need to be diligent to pay attention to our spiritual condition. Because the situation can be pretty dire if we don't. Now, as you go through verse by verse, uh, he develops his argument. What I want us to do is is look at it more in terms of the logic of the argument than the order of the verses. So three things we need to consider as we think about paying careful attention to our walk with Christ. First of all, he mentions that the revelation of the law in the Old Testament through angels brought discipline when it was broken, when it was transgressed. If you have read the Old Testament, you know that full well. But first we have to stop and answer a question. Angels? What did they have to do with it? Verse 2 says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. Well, if you go back and look at Exodus 19 and 20, where the Ten Commandments were given in Exodus 20, Exodus 19, the Lord comes down, prepares the people, he comes down. And then in chapter 20, he gives them the that core summary of his covenant with them, of the law, the Ten Commandments, which the rest of it really is uh, developing and fleshing out, illustrating through case studies of the principles of the Ten Commandments. We don't read anything there about angels. But in other places in the Scripture, it does mention angels being involved, being present. For example, Moses in Deuteronomy 33 Verse 2, Deuteronomy, you may recall, is uh, the, the, the name means a second law. And Deuteronomy is given uh, as a series of lessons or sermons that Moses preached after the people have wandered in the wilderness 40 years, after that unbelieving generation has died out. Now it's not going to be long before they go into the promised land. And Moses takes the time to rehearse to them their history, to teach them again the law, and to impress on them the importance of the law of God, not just outwardly, but a law for God's law and a law for God from the heart. Deuteronomy is about the heart to prepare them, this next generation, as they're about to go in. And it's in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. Moses says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Some translations read, He came with the ten thousands of holy ones, with flaming fire at his right hand. In other words, the idea is the Lord came to meet with his people. He came surrounded by the heavenly host, the armies of heaven, the angels of the Lord, and myriads of them, ten thousands of holy ones, certainly adding to the awesomeness of God's presence and appearance there on Mount Sinai. Much later, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3, verse 19, says, Why then the law? We're not saved by the law. We're saved by the grace of God in Christ. Why the law? 
Well, he says it was added because of transgressions, because of sins, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. The angels were involved in a mediatorial way. They were present and involved in the giving of the law. Acts 7, Stephen, uh, toward the end of his life, very close to the end of his life, uh, his faithful testimony for the Lord, uh, and dying at the hands of unbelievers. Acts 7, verse 52 and 53, Stephen says, uh, one, of the, one of those first deacons, full of wisdom, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. He says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So while Moses doesn't record the involvement of angels in Exodus 20, which is the primary passage we think of for looking for the Ten Commandments, another one is Deuteronomy 5, uh, in other places the involvement of angels is mentioned. And so that's why he says the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Because angels were involved in some mediatorial way as God gave the the law, the Ten Commandments. Now he says the message proved to be reliable. How so? Well, the law of God reveals the character of God. The law reveals... The avenue for blessing, that obedience to the law brings blessing, it brings joy. Disobedience to the law brings consequences. Every transgression, every disobedience received a just retribution. And it did. Numbers 15, verse 30, says the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he's a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. You read through the... Uh, read through the Old Testament, and you have accounts where people broke God's law and suffered consequences for doing so. Sometimes immediately so, sometimes it took longer. But then, of course, you also know that the, the whole nation suffered, in effect, the death penalty for their eventual rebellion against the Lord. The northern kingdom, after they split, was taken uh, by the Assyrians, and then as we recently studied on Sunday nights in Jeremiah, the southern kingdom, Judah, its capital Jerusalem, fell to the Babylonians in 587-586 B.C. Uh, because of their rebellion, because of their persistent idolatry, immorality, uh, pagan worship, all of these different things that were an offense to the Lord, and not that he wasn't patient, and not that he didn't send prophet after prophet, not that he didn't call them back to repent and come back to the Lord, be faithful to the covenant that they uh, had with him. But it's true. Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. The message proved reliable. And that's what he says here. The first point of his argument is that the revelation of the law through angels was reliable, and it brought consequences. It brought discipline when it was violated. Now, that's the first point, so keep that in mind. He moves on to his next point. Logically, he says the revelation of the gospel in Christ is greater than the revelation of the law given through angels. Now, we say, well, of course. But some of these people may have been thinking, well, you know, Jewish believers grew up hearing of Mount Sinai, hearing of the giving of the law, the mighty appearing of God. 
All we get is this carpenter. Hmm. The thunder, the fire, the angels, the voice of God at Mount Sinai. And this Nazarene who winds up getting crucified. You can see their difficulty. Well, what's this case here? He, well, he argues that no, the revelation of the gospel in Christ is greater. It's superior even to the fire and the thunder and the rumblings of Mount Sinai. We see this in verses 3 through 4. Notice where he says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. Now, the grace of God came, came before Jesus, but in terms of the new covenant, uh, it began with Jesus. Well, John the Baptist, of course, came as his forerunner, but Jesus was the main man. He was the one who came, the one who was the one, uh, John said, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. It was Jesus who declares in Mark chapter 1 that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And so that's what he's saying. The message was declared by the Lord, not by Jesus, but by the Lord. The name that was used in the Old Testament of Yahweh. By the Lord himself, here present. Notice what else he says. This also there in verses 3 and 4, into verse 3, and it was attested to us, it was verified to us, it was witnessed to to us by those who heard. So it began with Jesus, and the message was then passed on to us by those who heard him firsthand. Which, by the way, that verse to me argues pretty strongly against apostolic authorship for the book of Hebrews. You know, the old King James says the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. Well, Paul heard it directly from Christ. In fact, in Galatians, Paul makes the point, I didn't receive it from any man, but from the Lord. And yet the writer to the Hebrews includes himself among those who heard the gospel as it was attested to us by those who heard. Kind of a side point, who wrote Hebrews, much debated and discussed point. But for the purpose of his argument, it was declared, first of all, by the Lord himself, God incarnate. And then it was passed down to us by those who heard him, which is the true apostolic succession, not of men, but of truth, of the gospel, of the evangel. And then notice it was also verse four uh, testified to by God himself as he supplied signs and wonders and various miracles. Think about that in the life of Jesus. Jesus didn't do the miracles he did merely to wow the crowds. He did it because they testified that he was, in fact, the one they were waiting for. He was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. He was the Savior who had come to redeem his people. And the miracles testified to that. In fact, Jesus said, if you won't believe the words I say, at least believe the works I do. Because they testified that Jesus was, in fact, the Savior. No man could do the things that Jesus did. And he did them not on demand. Show us some sign. He didn't do them just to entertain. He did them to show mercy. Turned a lot of water into wine to help out the host of a wedding party. But he also did them primarily. Even that was included to testify that this is the Son of God, the Messiah. And signs and wonders and various miracles who were done by the, that were done by the apostles which testified that they were the ones the Lord had committed to found his church, to testify to the gospel. But even then, they weren't doing miracles all the time. 
I'm always struck by Paul's statement uh, when he says, Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. In other words, he left a man behind because he was sick. He couldn't go on. Paul, why didn't you heal him? Well, we don't know why Paul didn't heal him, but he didn't. He left him behind because he was ill and could not continue. So the apostles weren't always just doing miracles every time you turned around, but the Lord granted them that ability to testify to the truth, to the source of the message that they proclaimed as the human foundation of the new covenant people of God. In the Old Testament, the 12 tribes were the foundation of the people of God. In the New Testament, the 12 apostles are the foundation of the people of God, with the Lord, of course, himself as the the cornerstone, or to change the metaphor, ultimately the main foundation of both. But not only the signs and wonders and miracles, but by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will, certainly among the apostles, but also among the people of God. Now, you can look in the New Testament and find catalogs of these gifts, these graces of the Spirit in different places. One of the main places would be um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul talks about these gifts. He says, to each is given manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And he goes through and lists various gifts that are there. Again, not to draw attention to oneself, not to wow people, but for the good of the body of Christ here in the earth. And so he says, this message came from Jesus as he was here with us. It was testified to us by those who heard him firsthand, eyewitnesses to the teachings and the miracles and the resurrection of Jesus, and attested to as well by the various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit that God gives to his people. Now, in short, the end of verse 2, he describes this as such a great salvation. His point is that this is, in fact, greater, it's superior to what God's people had under the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant form of the Covenant of Grace, the Old Testament, that as great as those things were, what we have in Christ is much better. Under the Old Covenant, those who transgressed the law of God received the punishment for their disobedience. What we have in Christ is even greater. Therefore, and here's the, uh, here's the ergo, here's the therefore of his argument. If they suffered when they neglected the revelation given to them, how much more must we not neglect our salvation in Christ? If what they had brought consequences when they transgressed the law of God, how much more are the consequences all the more dire for us if we transgress, if we contradict, if we neglect the revelation that we have been given in Christ. And this is really where he starts in verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And again in verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? They didn't escape the revelation they received in the Old Testament. They couldn't get away with neglecting the law of God. They couldn't get away with violating their covenant with God under that covenant. Well, then he says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation as we have, such a great covenant as we have in Christ Jesus? There is no escape. The answer is we can't. You can't get away from God. You can't flee from God. You can't go somewhere where he's not. You can't hide somewhere where he doesn't see you. 
Jonah tried to get away from him. It didn't work so well. Turned out pretty well, at least from God's point of view. Jonah delivered the message, but he couldn't get away. You and I can't either. How shall we escape? We won't. No one escapes. And more positively, verse 1, he says we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Why does he say that? Does he get the sense that these believers he's writing to have sort of become lax, that they've sort of become careless, that they begin to show some signs of indifference? Well, they give lip service to the gospel, but he just kind of senses their heart's not really in it, that they're sort of distracted. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. How do we do that? What does it mean to pay closer attention to what we have heard? Let me ask you some questions that I think illustrate the point. Are you serious and intentional about growing as a Christian? Are you serious and intentional about growing as a Christian? Or is that something you don't give much thought to? Something that's at best haphazard in your life? Not something you really pursue. Something certainly you want to see happen, but not really intentional about it. If it happens, it happens. But otherwise, you're more interested in other things. Do you have a plan for growing as a Christian? Suppose you're serious. I want to grow as a believer. I want to follow Christ closely. What's your plan? How's that going to work out? How do you get there? Well, let me just suggest some ways that uh, they might help you in that. What sins are you addressing in your life these days? What sin were you fighting last week? What sins are you repenting of? What sins are you perhaps asking for help from a brother or sister in Christ to pray for you and to encourage you and, if necessary, confront you? Where are you reading in your Bible? What are you learning from what you're reading? Or maybe for some of you, where is your Bible? Say, well, I gave the last one I had to the hands of Christ. Well, no, keep one. Keep one for yourself, at least. (laughs) Some of you, the question may be, where is your Bible? Uh, But no, where, where are you reading? Are you reading to learn? Are you reading to grow? Are you reading because the calendar says you're supposed to read this today, and so you read it? Check that off. Got that done. Go through the rest of the day with a clear conscience. No. What's God taught you from what you read? Now, I'm speaking from experience. I love having had my quiet time. I'm not as fast to think through the day so that by the evening I remember what I read in the morning. It's easy to do that. It's just routine. I need to do it, I do it, and I move on. But what are you learning? What sin are you repenting of? What truth has God revealed to you in what you read? What have you learned about God? A new way to praise him, a new facet of his being to to adore him for. What verses in scripture are you memorizing and meditating on? That's a good way to read the scripture so that you remember it, is to work at memorizing it, learning it. Maybe a key verse, maybe a psalm, maybe a, a longer passage. Uh, there are various ways, various approaches. Neither of them, so none of them is right or wrong. Some have advantages uh, that others don't. Some of you may have been familiar with the old Navigator's topical memory system, a uh, way of memorizing verses based on various 
topics or needs uh, or ideas in the Christian life. Uh, that's going to be valuable to have a verse that you can call to mind for different situations. Others maybe work at, at memorizing more lengthy passages of Scripture. Uh, we were talking this past week in Vacation Bible School where those kids memorized, and you, some of you were here Friday night, and heard them, them recite the verses they memorized, uh, a fair amount of Scripture for just one week. And uh, one of the things I went over with the juniors that I was teaching was in memorizing, you, you have to do a couple things. You have to have a lot of repetition, and you have to break it down. And so when we would memorize, we'd memorize the first phrase, and then we would review it, and then we'd add, work on the second phrase, and then add it to the first, say the first and second together, and build from there. Now, that's true whether you're working on a verse, it's true whether you're working on a chapter. You break it down, and you go over it, and over it, and over it, and over it. And it's better to review it a short time daily than for a long period of time once. Uh, but some ways to, to memorize. But what a great way to get Scripture in us. Uh, I'm reminded of comment Howard Hendricks, uh, former professor at Dallas Seminary, made. You know, when a woman said, oh, I've been through the Bible however many times. He said, well, that's great, but how many times has the Bible been through you? Now, sometimes we've been through the Bible, but has the Bible been through you? Has it been through me? So these are some ways that we can think about paying much closer attention to what we have heard and praying that in all of those things, the Lord would give us a greater love for his word and for himself, all the while remembering that this is not the way you somehow earn God's favor. You don't. God loves you whether you read your Bible in the morning or not. If you are in Christ, Christ has earned God's favor. Christ has earned God's pleasure for you. But don't you want to grow? Don't you want to become strong? Don't you want to become more useful? Of course. And these are ways, together with public worship and study of God's word, these means of grace that God has given us to help us pay much closer attention to what we have heard. But he ends with a, a warning. Lest what? Lest what happens if we don't pay closer attention? Lest we drift away from it. The idea here, drifting, uh, is, is the idea of an anchor dragging. If you ever try to anchor a boat, you know, you want to get the anchor on the bottom as the boat begins to drift away, you feel that anchor line become tight. Then you can tell the anchor has dug into the bottom and you're secure. Or the anchor line may not be so tight, and you're kind of feeling this vibrating and bumping as the anchor drags along the bottom. And you're drifting. And that's the idea here. We are either anchored in the truth of Christ, in Christ himself, or we are drifting. Drifting is bad, because eventually you drift into something. Shallows, rocks, reefs, whatever it might be, lest we drift away from it. And you know, for most professing Christians, at least, sin usually doesn't come around all of a sudden in some big cataclysmic downfall. It begins as our love for Christ grows a little cooler. It begins as our interest in His Word begins to fade. And we drift little by little until eventually we find ourselves in a place where at one time we never dreamed we would end up. Like the way one writer put it, he said, for most of us, the threat of life is not so much we should plunge into disaster, but that we should drift into sin. 
Don't drift away to the shoals of sin. Drift away to your own destruction. The writer of the Hebrews says, instead, pay attention. Be sure that you are firmly anchored in Christ and in His truth. Be sure and make sure, make every effort to be sure that you are growing, not drifting, but anchored and growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we know ultimately it is your grace that holds on to us. And so, Father, we pray that you would preserve us and keep us from sin, keep us from drifting. But, Father, we also thank you for the gospel of Christ, the means of grace along with it that you've given to us. And we pray, Father, that as your people, that your word and the truth it teaches and our relationship with you, all of these things would be of the utmost interest in concern to us. Kindle those things in our heart. Father, keep us from growing cold. Keep us from becoming indifferent. Lord, preserve us from finding the things of Christ to be old hat. Keep us, Lord, from becoming so hardened that we become bored with the gospel. But Father, plow the soil of our hearts with your Holy Spirit. Keep us always fresh. Keep us growing. Keep us hungering and thirsting for more, more of your truth, more of Christ. And Father, all the more until that day that we stand before you and are welcomed home. Father, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, not just our new deacons, but all of us to be filled with your Holy Spirit, a Holy Spirit that is constantly and persistently pointing to Jesus. For it's in in his name we pray. Amen.